Well, you can open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. We are in the midst, right in the middle between series, just finishing the Songs of Ascent. We have Joshua 24 this week. We have our praise and prayer service next week, which, by the way, we're hoping to do once a quarter, three times a year, maybe at the, at the beginning of the fall, beginning of um, the year, maybe the beginning of the summer as well. So what we're doing, we're going to try and see if that, that goes well. Um, and next, and then the week after that, we're going to start Philippians. Uh, so between series, I, I like to take some time to address some things topically, and that's what I want to do from Joshua 24 today. And before we get into the text, I just want to tell you that um, as, as I'm out and meet with people, and when people find out what I do, that I'm a pastor, uh, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes when they hear I'm a pastor, they say, oh, forgive me what I've said. And I'm like, you don't have to, don't deal with me, deal with the Lord, you know. So sometimes things change. But often one of the, one of the questions that I receive more often than any others is this question. It says, how big is your church? And, and I think it's a fair question because a pastor of a church that's 30 people lives a different life than a pastor of a church that's 1,000 people. And so just kind of getting a sense of uh, what's happening here in the congregation. I normally say this. Uh, I normally say, we have about 100 people and about half of them are children, is what I always say. I said, no joke, our median age is about, is about 18. In fact, I went through a directory yesterday and kind of counting up. And, you know, we have more like about 60 people and about 60 children. Um, but really, we have lots of kids here, obviously. And uh, then often the response comes and says, wow, that's a good thing because children are the, that's the future of the church. And I just want to say right now to all you children who are here in the service that I am so delighted that you all are here at Rock Valley Bible Church. It is a joy to have children among us. It is a joy to hear uh, children whimpering and maybe crying or wrestling. I would rather hear that than to be perfectly dead silence and to have old people. In fact, I, I know of a pastor... Um, who told me that his, his congregation, he says, you might as well call us the geriatric church because everyone's so old. I've told you before of conversations, I think, before the couple pastors in town. One said the average age of his congregation is about 65. One said, well, I think the average age of my con- congregation is about 75. And I told them, well, we're about 18. They just looked at me like I was in a foreign land because I pastor a different church than they pastor. And I would just tell you, I, I would rather be here than to be in a situation like that, just because there's life here and there is future and there's potential. But with a lot of kids, it brings a lot of responsibility as well. And that's one of the things that I want to address for us here this morning. Because if the children of the church follow the Lord, there's a bright future for the church. But if the children of the church turn away, there's a dismal future for the church. And so... As we come to Joshua 24, I want to think about the future of the church. I want to think about the children of the church. I want to think about our homes. I want us to think about the legacy that we will leave. My message this morning is entitled, The Next Generation. The Next Generation. Because that's the people to whom Joshua is aiming in his comments. If you look here in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 24, we see Joshua gathering all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called the elders of Israel for their heads, uh, and for their heads, and for their judges, and the officers, 
and they presented themselves before God. Now, Joshua was uh, in the last days of his life. If you look back in 23, verse 14, Joshua says, Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. In other words, I am dying. I am soon to leave and depart. And like Moses did a generation before him, he summoned everybody to him and gave him his final charge. And, and, and I think as Joshua is talking to these people, he has the next generation in mind. And throughout chapter 24, he, he speaks really about two themes. First is the faithfulness of God. And, and second is for Israel's call to follow the Lord and to serve the Lord. So let's look. My first point here this morning, God has been faithful. Verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And from verses 2 through 13, it's, it's as if God is speaking to Israel, pleading His case of how faithful He has been. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your father lived beyond the river, Namely, Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterwards, I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you. And I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho and the citizens of Jericho fought against you and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Canaanite, and the Hivite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And thus I gave them into your hand. I, then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you. But not by your sword or your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built. And you have lived in them. And you are eating of vineyards and olive groves, <clears throat> which you did not plant. Now, in many ways, this is like Acts chapter 7, is it not? We've been reading through the book of Acts just Sunday after Sunday. We just pick up the next passage. And as Darren, we're at the end of chapter 7. And Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was recounting the history of Israel. And in fact, I remember several weeks ago, we were reading through this passage in family worship. I just said, hey, this sounds like a lot like Acts chapter 7, doesn't it? And it does because it goes to the history of Israel. But there's, there's a big difference. Because when uh, Stephen was preaching, he was talking about the history of Israel from, from our perspective and how often we rebelled against the Lord. But here in Joshua 24, we see God telling Israel of Israel's history and how faithful 
God had been to Israel. He begins with Israel's history at the beginning. The history of Israel began with Abraham. But he, he began it not in the land of Palestine, but he began it in Ur of the Chaldeans. Considering back when, when, when God called Abraham, Abraham's family wasn't godly by any other means. By any means, verse 2 says that they served other gods. According to Jewish tradition, Abraham's father was an idol maker. He's actually making idols and selling them. But God was merciful and showed grace to Abraham. He said to him, Genesis 12, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God was faithful to that promise. He took Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans, brought him in to the promised land. And although he dwelt in tents, that's, he got to see and taste the land where he was going to be. He gave him a son, which was the precursor to a great nation. By the time Joshua was speaking, this one man, Abraham, had a million descendants. Perhaps it's our best estimate, maybe a couple million. He gave him Isaac, and over the course of time, he gave him Jacob. And when there was a famine in the land, God rescued them from the famine. He did it in a miraculous way. You remember how he sent Joseph ahead before? He didn't really send it. He had the brothers deceive and sell him off to a band of traveling Ishmaelites. He was sold into slavery. But eventually, he got Pharaoh's eye and interpreted a dream and became vice-regent in all of Egypt. Joseph held all the world's food in his power. So that when there was a famine and the people came up to see him and Jacob's sons came up, he delivered Jacob's sons. That's how God did it. He sent Joseph ahead of them. He not only provided with food, but a place to stay. They dwelt in Egypt in the land of Goshen. God was faithful to his people. And when the sons of Israel began to multiply in Egypt, and when a new king arose over Egypt, he didn't know Joseph, the people of Israel were enslaved by Egypt. But again, God rescued His people. That's the story of the Bible. God is always redeeming His people. And He did so in a, in a stunning way. He sent ten plagues upon Egypt to display His power and make a mockery of the Egyptians. I love how verse 5 says it. What does it say? Then I sent Moses and Aaron and I... What? Are you looking there? Verse 5. And I plagued Egypt. Right? I tormented them. I overwhelmed them. I was the thorn in their side. And eventually they let you go. But God's tormenting the Egyptians didn't merely end with the tenth plague and the death of the firstborn. God hardened their heart so that Pharaoh commanded the army to chase after them. And God delivered Israel through the Red Sea, as verse 6 says. And God brought the sea upon the Egyptians, according to verse 7. Drowned them all, just showing His power. God was faithful to His people to rescue them. And even when they wandered in the wilderness, God was faithful to His people. He gave the Amorites into their hands. He gave the people of Moab into their hands. He gave Jericho into their hands. They came into the Promised Land. According to verse 11, we see that He gave the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite all into the hands of the people of Israel. God was good to them. And look at verse 13, how good God was to Israel. <clears throat> it says this, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them 
in your eating of the vineyards and the olive groves, which you did not plant. Here they were in the, the land of promise, gleaning from the land, right? eating of the, the trees and the vines and the olive groves. They didn't plant and living in houses that they didn't build because God let them plunder the people of the land. How merciful and how gracious God has been to Israel. God has been faithful. But God's faithfulness didn't merely end with the Israelites. It's extended to us today. All of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ know of God's faithfulness. And just as Joshua told the story of God's faithfulness to Israel, I can tell your story of God's faithfulness to you. Now, your circumstances are all different. I don't know the individual circumstances of all your life. I know your circumstances of many of your lives. But I do know enough of your story to know where your story began. Just as Abraham's story started with uh, a home of idol makers, so also your story has a beginning in sin. Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He speaks about how we lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And because of our sin, God's wrath was upon us, but God was faithful to us and that He didn't let us just in our sin. Instead, He loved us instead. God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's our story. Upon the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin. But all of your story goes something like this, that I was dead in my sin, but God brought someone along to tell me of a Savior. He brought someone along to, to tell me what Jesus did on the cross. He brought me along, someone along to, to tell me that if I but believe in Jesus, my sins can be forgiven. And for many of you, God opened your eyes mercifully and graciously to the glories of Jesus. And you believed and, and, and you're saved from your sin, not by your own works, but it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, by His doing you're in Christ Jesus. And now your story is that you can look forward to glory someday in heaven. Am I describing you? Has God been faithful to you in those ways? I trust that's your heart. I know many of you here in this room have heard your testimonies. That is your testimony of God's saving grace in your life. But listen, even if you're here this morning and not believing, God's been faithful to you as well. Because God has even brought you here. Sustained you to this day to even today hear the good news of Jesus giving you yet another opportunity to turn and repent. So I call you today, repent and believe and trust in the Lord. He's been faithful. Well, let's go back to our text. Joshua says the Lord has been faithful. And many of us can reflect upon our life about God's faithfulness. Secondly, he says this, so serve the Lord. Look at verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. I think Joshua is aiming for this generation. He's aiming for the generation to come. He's reminding them of God's faithfulness. Now he just calls them to serve the Lord. Twice in verse 14, the call comes. Serve him in sincerity and truth. The end of verse 14, serve the Lord. Joshua is simply calling the people to, to seek the Lord. It means to serve the Lord. It means to seek Him, to worship Him, to obey Him, to cling to Him, to cry out to Him, to trust in Him, to love Him, to speak of Him. Right? Not the idols of the land, 
But the Lord of the universe is where our trust should be. This is the same thing that Moses called Israel to do. Deuteronomy 10, verse 20 through 22. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and cling to Him and you shall swear by His name. He is your praise and He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all. And now the Lord your God has made them as numerous as the stars of the heavens. He says, look at how great God is. Look at how faithful He's been. Look at how kind He's been. So serve Him and love Him and cling to Him. Joshua's message is the same as Moses' message, the same as Jesus' message. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's what it means to serve the Lord. And then Joshua in verse 15 puts it as plain as could be. He says, okay, let's just think about that. I'm calling you to serve the Lord. But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord... Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In other words, if you don't want to serve the Lord, then don't, is what he says. Some persuasion that is, right? If it's disagreeable to you to serve the Lord, then don't. Okay, you, there are lots of other gods to choose from. Why don't you choose the other god? You can choose the god that, that, that Terah was making beyond the river in Ur of the Chaldeans. Why, that god, why don't you choose that one? Or you can choose the god of the Amorites. You can choose that one. You can choose the gods that, that the Egyptians serve, which some of you were, were serving when we were in Egypt as well. The, the god of the lands, the Baals, the Asherahs. You, you, you find your god. You choose your god. If God isn't the one that you're going to serve. Just, I think, the heart here is make it clear. Either serve the Lord or don't. Don't pander in between like, well, maybe, maybe not. Just go for it. And a similar call could easily come to us as well. Right? If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord Jesus, then you serve your own God to serve. Choose your own God to serve. Serve the God of money, maybe. Just pursue wealth and materialism and bigger and bigger and bigger and get every you can, right? Get all you can and get all you get. Get it. Serve the God of pornography. Just pursue after it. Right? Let lust be your king. Or serve the God of, of immorality. Live in that bad relationship. Or serve the God of tolerance. Don't stand up. Don't stand up for what's right. Be a coward. Just, just tolerate everybody. Now, there is tolerance. We need to have that. But the tolerance of the world means acceptance. You approve everybody. Or the God of pleasure. Or the God of politics. Make Democrats or Republicans your thing you're going to triumph. Serve that God. Or or serve your career. Climb that corporate ladder. or, Or serve the God of your youthful health. Or serve the God of abortion. Same sex marriage. Listen. If you're not going to serve the Lord. Serve something else. Make it clear. But before you jump, I'd have you consider Joshua's first point, though. Consider the faithfulness of God. Over and over and over and over again, God has proved Himself worthy of being trusted. There are biblical examples that abound. God was faithful to Daniel. God was faithful to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God was faithful to Elisha. God was faithful to David. God was faithful to Nehemiah. God was faithful to Ezra. God was faithful to Asaph. 
New Testament, God was faithful to Stephen, though he was stoned. God was faithful to Peter and Paul. God was faithful to Mary. God was faithful to the women who followed Jesus. On and on it goes. You can look to biblical examples to see God's faithfulness. You also can look to examples of those you know. Many of us in this room know of the faithfulness of God. We have found God worthy of our trust. We have seen difficulty in our life and we've trusted the Lord. We have seen Him be faithful and pull through. Day to day, we demonstrate it more and more. And so if you this morning are considering, okay, well, is it disagreeable to serve God or should I serve something else? Realize that God has proved Himself faithful and faithful, faithful, and all these other gods will never satisfy. You will never have enough money. How much more does the businessman need? Just a little bit more, right? You will never satisfy the lust of your flesh. This won't happen. You will never find satisfaction in earthly status, what others think of you. You'll never find deliverance in the government. What goes around comes around. You will not be young forever. I'm knowing that more and more as I'm approaching 50. Your body will grow old, weak and frail, and like the grass, the earth, the flower of the field, it will fade away. This life is temporary. You will only find satisfaction in the Lord. And that's what Joshua is saying here in verse 15. He says, okay, you, you either serve God or not. And he says, for me and my house, here's what we're staking our claim. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua led the people well. They wanted to follow his example. Three times in the text we hear of people of Israel vowing to serve the Lord. I I love this. Look at how they responded after he said, we will serve the Lord. He says, the people answered, verse 16, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord is our God. Is He who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from, the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who live in the land. And there it comes. We also will serve the Lord for He is our God. Then Joshua rubs them a little bit. So today, if you're saying, I'm going to serve the Lord, let me rub you a little bit like Joshua did. Joshua said this, well, you will not be able to serve the Lord, verse 19, for He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. In other words, if you... Go back on your promise. God's going to let you go. He's not going to forgive you because you haven't sought Him. You sought your other ways. And the people then said, no, 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 but we will serve the Lord. That's the idea. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Don't turn back. Press on. We will serve the Lord. I trust that's your heart. Verse 22, Joshua continues to push. He says, you are witnesses against yourselves. That you've chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve. <clears throat> they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. What a what a great crescendo of his congregation. Right. They said, we are going to serve the Lord. And Joshua appreciated that. that Through all their obstacles, through all their objections, through all objections, through all resistance. The people of Joshua's day stood firm. We will serve the Lord. And so Joshua responded. Okay, if you're going to respond this way, verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the yoke that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us, and thus it shall be a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. Now, it's interesting, Yvonne and I, about 15 years ago, went to Israel, and we're in Shechem, and in Shechem there is this large stone. It stands maybe six feet tall, maybe, so I remember, I don't know, six feet, eight feet, five, something like that. It's about like this big, kind of goes up there like that. And many people think that this was the very stone that Joshua put up there. I don't know if it was or not, but the image was emblazed on my mind at least. And, and even it had its name. It's, it's a witness in Hebrew is called Aid. That's what witness is in Hebrew. And so Ivana effectually called the, the stone Ed. In fact, if you read... Um, Josh, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 30 speaks about a similar stone. Joshua made this covenant. Now, I'm not going to make a covenant with you today. If you're saying, yes, I'm going to serve the Lord. But this morning, I'm going to give you another book. I gave you a book, I think it was two weeks ago, The Pastor's Wife. I know you haven't probably had time. Has anyone read that book yet? Some of you, maybe. Okay, good. Good. Well... I may overwhelm you. This isn't every day at Rock Valley Bible Church, but sometimes we have have this book. A few months ago, there's a great deal in this book, so I nabbed up a bunch of copies of it, thinking and kind of visiting a time. I just want to push this issue again for our congregation here. It's called Family Worship in the Christian Home, A Neglected Grace, written by Jason Hilopoulos. He's an associate pastor with Kevin DeYoung. There's a pastor Re- University Reformed Church, I think, in Lansing, Michigan, where my daughter is today, actually. It's kind of exciting. Going to uh, Kevin DeYoung's church would be wonderful. But anyway, purchase a co- bunch of copies. After the service, will be on the table back there. You can take them, uh, one per family, and I encourage you to take it and read it. It's a short book, a uh, little more than 100 pages. Pages aren't big. I-, I-, I think you could read it in a few hours out loud. It's really pretty simple. It's not so, so difficult. Its aim is to promote family worship. And for those of you who have been around Rock Valley Bible Church, you know that this has been a common theme uh, among us. Um, you've heard the term. You know what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about worshiping the Lord in our homes. I'm talking about singing together, worshiping. I'm talking about reading the Scriptures together, learning from the Scriptures together. I'm talking about praying together. Other things come along with that, whether it's Bible memory, or whether that's some catechism you're working through, whether it maybe is an extended time of response to teaching 
of what's just been read, or maybe it's reading through some Christian book, or, or whatever. Family worship can happen in many ways, in many different forms, in many times. It can be early morning, it can be midday, it can be late at night, it can be long or it can be short, but just a time where the family gathers together to worship. Just as you worship the Lord in devotionals, just as you and God, and just as we worship the Lord corporately here, family worship is another place in which to worship the Lord. And this Sunday, I simply want to encourage you to practice this once again. Maybe you've heard about it before. Maybe you've tried it before. Maybe you've failed before. Maybe you've stopped. I want to encourage you this morning to start again, to give it another try. I believe it's that important. You know, we as a church can make some impact on the life of your children. But the major impact that will be made in the lives of your children spiritually will be done in the homes by all of you parents. And by the way, if you're living in an apartment with other people, you can still have family worship there wherever you dwell. If you're just husband and wife at home, you still have family worship. But oftentimes it's focused upon children and I know as we think today about making an impact upon the lives of our children, the next generation, family worship, I believe, is one of the, the most crucial ways to make that known. And I'm simply calling you parents to do this. Make the reality of your profession flush out somehow in your home. Joshua didn't say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord for nothing. It's as if he said this. Okay, here it is. If it seems disagreeable to serve the Lord, you figure out what you're going to do. But as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. And so here it was. I think, the, I think he took up the gauntlet. He said, me, and, and I'm not sure if he consulted with Mrs. Joshua or not. I'm not sure. Or his kids. He said, you know what? I'm taking charge. And our house here, we are going to serve the Lord. And this call really comes to you fathers. It comes to you. To take up the gauntlet and say, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And I just know from my house, my our house, if I don't take the initiative, it doesn't happen. Because it's the way a home works. A father loves and leads. And if I don't lead in that area, then it doesn't happen. And I just encourage you men to initiate family worship. Now, some of you, maybe husbands are unsaved. I just encourage you wives to do so. Do something. Ask your husband. This book, by the way, has some great counsel and advice to those who don't have unbelieving spouses um, or to those whose spouses aren't really into it. Has has counsel on single parents. Has counsel. Just, just some good ideas and some help for that as well about how to do that. But I think Joshua here, even in Joshua 24, is calling the men. I mean, look who he summoned. He summoned the elders, verse 1. He summoned their heads, their judges and their officers. Like He summoned the, the leading men and just said, guys, what are you going to do? And Joshua and his wife and his children said, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to seek the Lord, worship Him, obey Him, and love Him. And my hope and prayer this Sunday is that this book might just be the catalyst to help get you over the hump. Whereas before you've tried and failed and just kind of for discouragement, I said, well, let's try again. And maybe maybe this simple little little book might might help. Now, it's not that family worship is the end all end all thing you need to do to serve the Lord. There's much more to serving the Lord and gathering your family on a daily basis to sing and read and pray 
together. There are attitudes that you pass along in your car as you drive, which have an implication in the future of your, your family and your kids and the next generation. There are values that you pass along at the dinner table as you sit and speak with your children. There is a heart that you pass on as you pray with your children before they go to bed at night. In fact, I read a, an article recently by Tim Challies, written, it was entitled this, this is just like uh, I think two weeks ago. I almost put it in the weekly word, but I didn't want to steal my thunder. So it said this, the title was, when you pray with your children, you're teaching your children to pray. Tim Challies says this, every night my girls want me to pray with them and for them. If I do not tuck them in at night or if I forget to pray when I do tuck them in, I can be sure that sooner or later they, I will hear feet coming down the stairs with the question, Daddy, will you pray with us? Sometimes I think they are expressing a good and heartfelt desire and at other times I think they're merely being superstitious as if bad dreams will plague them and every shadow will frighten them if I do not pray. Either way, I never refuse them. The other night I neglected to pray with them. It was the end of a long day. I had fulfilled my parenting duties and I had gone off the clock. I wanted some me time and then I heard the footsteps on the way down the stairs. I groaned inwardly, Daddy, you didn't pray with us. So I called them over and prayed with them and it was a perfunctory prayer. It was lacking in enthusiasm and joy and confidence. I have shown more interest in taking out the trash, Tim Shelley says. I then sent them back to bed and went back to what I was doing. It was just a, a little moment in the life, life of a normal family. And I woke up the next morning and spent some time reading in Philippians. Right there at the start of the letter, Paul tells the church how and why he's praying for them. Paul deliberately opens his prayer life in order to teach the church how they ought to pray. In his commentary, Dennis Johnson writes, how can we learn to pray? Instruction helps, but example is the key. We learn to pray by hearing other people's prayers. When I had spent a few minutes in the past, I went for a walk, and as I walked and prayed and prayed and walked, this thought struck me. When you pray with your children, you're teaching your children to pray. When my girls crept down the stairs the night before, they gave me opportunity to teach them, and I had taught them. I had taught them that prayer can be monotone, that prayer can be done in a quick and uninterested and perfunctory manner, and I had taught them that prayer is duty more than it is delight. The lessons were not all bad. I had taught them as well that they can and should entrust their cares to God and that He is the one who provides for their needs. But still, if that prayer was a teaching opportunity, it was one that I mishandled and one that I regret. If my girls had come down for formal instruction, if they had said, Daddy, teach us to pray, I would have taught something far different from what I modeled that night. I would have told them to approach God boldly and confidently, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I would have told them to approach God enthusiastically. I would have warned them of the danger of perfunctory prayers, which can all too soon tip us into superstitious prayers. I would have warned them against all these things I did. Well, tonight they will come again if I do not first go to them. And again, I will have the opportunity to pray with them and to pray for them. But now I know that this is not a time to fulfill a duty or cross something off my list. When I pray with my children, I'm teaching my children to pray. And I view praying with your children at night as a different thing than family worship, but it, it's a part and an aspect of it when you pray with them. And certainly everything he said about that is true of family worship together. But it's the things we do when we're with the kids. Our attitudes, our values, our heart that we pass on to our children. Far more than just what happens when you gather for ten minutes to have this family worship time. 
There are other decisions you make in the course of your life that will put on display how faithful the Lord is, that he is to be trusted as well. A few weeks ago, maybe some of you remember Hunter Mahan was on the golf course. He was uh, golfing in the Canadian Open. And he wasn't just golfing. He was in the lead of the Canadian Open. And he received a phone call while on the golf course that his wife had gone into labor some three weeks earlier. And you know what he did? You hear the story? He boarded a plane and went down to his home in Texas, Dallas, where he could be with his wife and experience the birth of his child. And doing so, he forfeited any winnings that he might have. In the Canadian Open, he was leading. If he'd won that thing, a million dollars would go his way. Here's what he said. He said, when I'm done playing golf, I'd rather be noted for being a good husband and a good father than anything else. Those are little decisions that people make that will go with them long time. That, that will influence kids different than a way of family worship. And so I'm, I'm not saying family worship is the only way. Okay? But I do believe that his decision will be told for years to come. Think about when he sits his child in his lap and says, I don't even know whether it's a boy or a girl, but sits John, Johnny. It says on his fifth birthday, he says, Johnny, I remember when you were born. I was golfing and I was leading. That was going to be a million dollars if I held that lead. But you're worth more than a million dollars. I think Johnny will tell that story for years to come. I think it will be far more valuable to their family than any million dollars could have been to their family. It's a good decision. So there are lots of things that, that, that shape your family's life, the shape of your spiritual life for your children. But here's what I would argue, though. I would argue this, that family worship has helped set the direction for everything else. That's what I would argue. Just as consistent Bible reading and a vibrant prayer life sets the direction for your walk with the Lord, and just as the manner in which the Word of God is treated in the pulpit Sets a direction for a church. So also I would say that your time of worship together as a family sets the course for the spiritual lives of the next generation. And I, I commend to you the practice of family worship. Now, one of the things I really appreciate about this book is the, the spirit in which it was written. I mean, even the title says it. Family worship in the Christian home a neglected grace. In other words, you're missing out. That's what he's saying. He says, there is this grace that's right here and family worship is the path to get there and if you're not doing family worship, you're missing out. And who wants to miss the party? That's the whole flavor of this book. It's not some obligation. It's not family worship. You must do it. It's family worship. It's the path to grace. And we all want joy, Right? And he, he spells it out. And here again, I'm just going to read from this book and kind of tease you a little bit to maybe get you to read the book. If you don't read the book, here are some of the highlights and consider it summarized for you. But catch his spirit in this book. He says, this is a small and simple book and I have a small and simple prayer to accompany it. 
It is my hope that the Lord will use this book to encourage you and your family to introduce family worship into your home or to persevere in it. And there is no better time than now for this time-tested and beneficial aspect of Christian life to be revived. However, my hopes for revival of family worship are not meant to place a burdensome expectation on Christian homes. We all know well the sense of struggle and at times failure in leading our homes in worship. At the outset, I want to make it clear this book is not intended to heap guilt upon the shoulders of husbands and mothers and parents who struggle to lead their homes in family worship. My great challenge in writing this book was to do so in a way that would show the benefits of family worship, how important and beneficial it is for the Christian family, and yet would do so in a way that would not lead struggling husbands, fathers, and mothers to be weighed down by guilt. If this book increases guilt in the reader, then my prayer is it quickly goes out of print. Instead, I hope this book will be an encouragement to the reader to have true resolve to engage in family worship, but only by, in, through, and because of the grace of God. As we approach the subject of family worship, it is helpful to be reminded that it is nothing more than our response in the home to God's magnificent and infinite grace. It is by His, that grace that we gather together with the family members to delight in His excellent goodness and eternal glory. Family worship is not something we have to do. Our right standing before God is not impacted by whether we lead our families in worship or not. Christ has already accomplished all for our salvation. Rather, family worship, like other spiritual disciplines, becomes something we want to do. As the individual Christian changed by God's grace naturally begins to read the Bible, sing, pray, so the Christian family, impacted by the grace of God, will want to gather to read the Bible, sing, and pray as all the Christian life is lived in grace. So we enjoy and pursue family worship by that same grace. He says, I'm not an expert in family worship. My wife and kids can testify to that. My family and I continue to learn how to do family worship better, more faithfully, more consistently, with more joy. I confess it's not always easy and at times even laborious, it seems. But I have seen up close the fruit that accrues in a family when they worship regularly together in their home. Family worship has benefits that are eternal and that is worthy of our pursuit. Consider this book an encouragement to that end. Do you catch his spirit? He's just saying, I want you to know the joy, I want you to know the help in that. And, and I would say that we as our family, we've, we are not experts. We struggle. In fact, this week, I think we gathered once, maybe twice, I don't know. Um, and even I'm preaching on family worship, right? We only gathered once or twice due to just circumstance of life. Things are, things are busy um, and things are difficult. But I would say this, that I, I've seen fruit from it in our lives. And I know that you all will see fruit from it in your lives as well. Um, he um, is very practical and very open and honest. I appreciate what he said about singing. Humorous even. He says, for the vast majority of families, singing is initially the most awkward element of family worship. Most of us are not that excited about the voices we have been blessed with. And those around us aren't real sure we are a blessing either. And it is impossible to hide your voice when there are only two, three, or four, five people in the room. But don't let the initial awkwardness and off-key notes deter you from singing praise together as a family. I thought we were decent at singing until we bought a new puppy. And that first night, we did family worship in the same room as him. He began to howl. And I thought it was just the newness of the noise. But the following night, he did the same thing. Listen, if we can continue to sing, though we make dogs cry out in pain, you can too, is what he says. Um, it's, it's not about sounding real nice, about just, you know, 
We don't sing all the time. Um, but it is about, hey, we sing together Sundays. We sing. In fact, Tina does a great job on the stuff for Sunday. You get the songs that we're going to sing every week. Come right there. You can print them out and sing them. Thanks, Tina. That's what it's for. It's for us to sing those songs so the kids come and more get, oh, I know that song because we've been singing it at home. We don't do that all the time, but that'd be a great thing. He's got some great practical helps. Chapter 7 is worth the price of the book. He just encourages us, find the best time. Find the best time for you and your family. Your circumstances might be different. I'm just pulling the headings. Use the same time, the same place, so as to minimize distractions as much as possible. Start slow. Don't expect so much. Brevity is better. Longer doesn't always mean better. Make it a priority. This is be flexible. Say amen to that. It needs to be flexible. You need to have the right attitude. Children are intuitive and will experience when dad is just kind of just trying to fulfill this or when it's a joy. And persevere. He just says keep on going. Keep on going. Keep on going. And that's what I want to encourage you all. Just to keep on going and to keep on worshiping the Lord in this way. And, and, and I love the way he handles when... We fail. He says, this verse mentioning again, the family worship is an instrument through which God gives us grace. It's not something that should be a burden. It's a joy. Since it's not to be a burden, we should not be hard on ourselves. We miss a night. What often happens is a family will miss a night and then two, and then three, and then a week and never pick it up again. Often this happens because it feels like we're having to start a huge task all over again and the burden is just too great. As so I tell friends and remind myself, you miss a night, Fine. Pick it back up the next night. If you miss two nights or three nights or even a week, fine. Don't beat yourself up. Just pick it up the next night. Family worship, like all kinds of worship, is a means of grace. It's not to be viewed as a burden or a task to be accomplished. It is something we do in response to God's grace, not to earn it. We often approach it legalistically, and doing so not only kills the joy of worshiping God, but is antithetical to the relationship rooted in grace that we have in God. Worship is not to be a weight around our necks, but a means of lifting our heads up. Therefore, if it's a hard week, don't heap guilt upon your family's shoulder for missing family worship. Just pick it right back up. It's no different than the struggles many of us find in maintaining secret worship. It's the same struggle and the same remedy. By God's grace... We apply ourselves to it again. And that's what I'm hoping you all do. Just by God's grace, apply yourself to it again. Well, finally, I just one, one more quote up here. He gives a vision. And this is really my vision for you all, my vision for the church and family worship. He says, daily family worship provides a continual reminder that we are worshipers of Christ. It has the added benefit of shaping our home around this worship, a family that reads the Bible, prays together, and sings praise to God together, will begin to have its actions, thoughts, and words shaped by this daily event. Isn't this the kind of home that we want? As a young parent, I can't tell you how many empty nesters have commented to me, well, enjoy your children while you have them, because before you know it, they will be on their own. Before our children leave our home, by God's grace, I want them to have experienced a home that's filled with worship. As parents, we want our children leaving our home thankful for many things. It's good that we have taken them to soccer games, or curled up with them on the couch, to watch a television show together. My kids and I love to struggle, snuggle on the couch and watch Julia Child cook and try to imitate her voice. But I don't want that memory to be the dominant one in their minds because 
Those are the kind of events which dominate a life together. When our children leave home, what will they say was the center of the family's life together? Do we want them primarily thankful for parents who watched television with them or attended their games? Or do we desire that our children leave the home with an understanding that worship is in the center of who we are and what we do and that Christ is what was most cherished? I think all of us would say that our desire by God's grace is that our children might one day say, our parents were quirky, had many faults, and were by no means perfect. But we know that they loved the Lord, they worshipped Him, and were determined to share Christ's love with us. Isn't that a great vision? I think that's, that's what Jason Helopolis, or that's how you say his last name, is really, really striving for in this book. And, and one thing that's interesting about family worship, I was, I was thinking about it with respect to Joshua 24. So we come back here just one last time as I finish here. Is that what happens at, at family worship every time is Joshua 24. Every time. Is that when you read the Bible together, what ultimately strikes you? Wow, God is a faithful God. We sure can serve Him. Right? Over and over and over again, that's the message. God is faithful. We can serve Him. Or I think about it in family worship when maybe you're sharing your concerns, your struggles with life. Maybe when finances are in a pinch and you tell your children we need to cut back on some spending here. Or or maybe you're struggling because you're out of work and children, we need to get on our, our knees and pray for daddy because we need to find some work. Or maybe some illness has come. And you're struggling with that. And you're praying to God that God would, would help you in this illness or some relational problem you have and you're sharing that with your kids. It just becomes a, a constant thing you're praying about with your, your kids and your family. And then what happens when they see God pull through and answer your prayers and provide for you? Isn't it the same message of Joshua 24? The Lord has been faithful. So let's serve the Lord. And that happens throughout Family worship, when they see answers to prayer and they see how you trusted the Lord and you're modeling before them that, yes, God, God is faithful. He can be trusted. That This is the message of family worship every time. The Lord has been faithful. Let's serve the Lord. Well, the good news of Joshua's day is that they indeed serve the Lord. Look at verse 31 back in Joshua 24. And this, by the way, as we're reading through this in family worship, we came across verse 31. I said, oh, that's a great verse to highlight just what Joshua did in his, uh, in his um, family and with Israel. And I thought, because I bought this book months ago, and it was probably a month and a half ago, two months ago, I read, we read this as a family. I said, that's what we need. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Apparently Joshua did something right. He, he said, we're going to serve the Lord. Everyone followed him. And indeed, everyone followed in the Lord that day. And that's my hope for the children of Rock Valley Bible Church, that they too would serve the Lord all the days of their life. Now, the sad note, though, comes in the generation after that. Because future generations didn't prove so faithful. Because all you need to do is read the book of Judges. That first generation may have done well, but then that next generation did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, turn over to Judges 2, and here we will end. Judges picks up right after Joshua. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. Picks up the same event from Joshua 24. When Joshua had dismissed the people, 
the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaish. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So in some regard, I'm I'm preaching for our generation, this generation. In some regard, I'm preaching for the next generation. May God do in the lives of all you children different than the lives of the people here who who served the Lord faithfully their generation but didn't pass it on. There need be those who pass it on. And I would contend that family worship is a key ingredient in passing that faith on to your children who aren't even born. You, You kids aren't even married yet. You're not even thinking about that. But I'm thinking about your children and have a heart this morning that they would be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord that you kids would say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, may the Lord do a a work in the lives of our children. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a a great message. You have been faithful, so serve the Lord. And God, I would pray for the effects of, of this book. If it comes across legalistically, as my sermon does, God, erase it from our memories. The book is of no help. God, I pray that it would be of no help. But, but if in some ways it helps some family, God, be more consistent in coming to You on a consistent basis. God, I, I praise You because I'm just convinced of how good that is for the lives of our children. So, Father, I pray even right now for the fathers whose hearts may be struck and pierced, whose neglect may be very public. I pray for conversations with wives of confession. I pray for wives to be gentle. I pray for harmony to be in the home. I pray for family worship to be a staple of many homes. God, whatever that means, whether it's once a week, whether it's once a day, whether it's twice a day, God, whether it's three minutes or 30 minutes, I, I pray, Lord, that you would gather little families together all over the Rockford area and they'd be worshiping you and they would come together in this place that our, our worship would, would God, be greatly enhanced. And so I pray for our children. I thank you for all the children that we have. I pray that they would learn from their parents' example. And so I pray for parents' examples. They'd be well, that they would be good. God, we long for this next generation to be a generation that praises you and that serves you and walks in your way. And, and that's only by your grace. That's only by your grace. It's only by your power. And so it's to you that we pray, trusting, O oh Lord, that you will accomplish your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.